This is the Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. While there are many global forces driving the current change in economic conditions, there are plenty of domestic factors too. In Budget Week, we speak to one of New Zealand's leading independent economists, Cameron Bagri, about the outlook for the country. With persistently high inflation, is there any realistic chance of the Reserve Bank getting it back down to 2%? Can our dairy exports help us offset the impacts of global food price increases? And what roles will tourism and migration play in recalibrating the New Zealand economy for a post-COVID world? Cameron starts by discussing the stark difference between where the economy is today compared to just a few months ago. Where do I start? Because there's a there's a hell of a lot uh, going on. You, if you look at where the New Zealand economy is, or probably was two or three months ago, we were in the too much of a good thing zone. You know, had an economy, in the words of the OECD, was overheating. So success, ironically, has its pitfalls and its challenges on the other side as well as being hit by various supply-side shocks, you know, Ukraine, where you look at COVID, you just had an economy that's too hot to, hot to trot. Now, house prices were too high, there was too much work out there, and the unemployment rate was too low at 3.2%. Yeah, so suddenly, I think everybody's now starting to realise that the laws of economics, which were sort of ignored in 2020 and probably halfway through 2021, cannot be ignored. You know, what we're now starting to see across New Zealand is that Various pop variables are starting to pop, and the pop variables basically tell us we've been on, we're on an unsustainable path. Yeah, pop variable one is inflation, yeah, up towards seven percent, and the fear is it could be sticky. Yeah, the current account deficit, which is like the national checkbook, yeah, the money going out the door versus what's coming in, that's back up around six percent of GDP. Yeah, we're starting to see a lot more lending in New Zealand into the non-bank sector, which on some levels is a good thing because it's actually driving more competition. But when I start to see non-banks writing about one in 10 mortgages, you start to wonder where the credit risk is starting to be transferred. So New Zealand, unfortunately, is facing a little bit of what we call payback or also I personify the three R's. Yeah, R number one is, look, reality is that uh, you know, the Omicron boost, COVID was always, and stimulus was always going to be temporary. We're now going through the reset phase. The house prices in Auckland are down 10% from their peak. You know, they're down 6% across New Zealand. We've obviously seen the, the turbulence across equity markets. You know, that's, that's the reset. And now what we're going through is we're shifting into an environment of what we call real hard work. You know, welcome to the world where you need to take real risk to take, make real money because suddenly central banks in the form of lower and lower interest rates have no longer got your back. It's a fundamentally different investing climate and we're only now, I think, starting to see, people start to realise the significance of probably where we've been relative to where we are going to be going future. You know, the, the market, I think, is starting to remove what's called the central bank foot. You know, for 30-odd years, yeah, central banks have just rode in on their white horse and sort of rescued everything through lower and lower interest rates. You know, I think those days are, are done and dusted. So, you know, once again, you need to now take real risk to make real money, different environment. And when you think about that from a um, this week's perspective around government and, and you talked about the, the Fed put or the RBNZ put, 
when you look at the state of the books of of New Zealand itself, is there anything the government can do? And should we be looking out for? I.e., should they be spending a lot more money? Um, and and I'm not just talking about increasing things like minimum wage and 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 that sort of thing. Well, that's not them spending money, but you know what I mean. But it's more around capital spending and infrastructure and, and those sorts of spends. Is that the kind of stuff we should be looking out for, given our debt levels aren't perhaps as bad as those, say, in, in the UK and other European countries? Yeah, well, I wouldn't be comparing New Zealand's debt levels to the likes of the UK or the United States, you know, because we're a small open economy and they're, they're pretty big and they've got pretty deep, well-functioning bond markets. So it's sort of like comparing an apple with an orange. Yeah, New Zealand debt levels, though, are pretty low, you know, 35% of GDP. It's on a rising trajectory though, and we're now getting into that era where the long-term fiscal cost of an aging population is now starting to, to bite. So I don't think we're going to be getting debt levels down anytime soon, but we do have a strong government balance sheet. And what does that mean? It provides options, flexibility on the other side to invest particularly in the long-term. Yeah, this week's budget, I'll be looking pretty closely at what we're starting to see in regard to capital spend versus operational spend. It's pretty obvious it's going to be the biggest operational spend budget we've ever seen. There's $6 billion per year. Now, that's $24 billion over four years. Now, the danger is that with inflation, the government decides, no, we're going to have a fixed nominal amount for capital spend. So implicitly, the real value of your infrastructure program over the next 10 odd years could be down by 20 to 30% because that, that's been the implicit inflation shock we're going to see over, over a five-year period. So I'd like to see capital given a lot more of a priority. I, th- I think it's going to be an operational spend budget. And it's not just this this budget that I'm you know, keeping close eye on. There is a real dangerous trend coming through budgets where they tend to be bigger spending affairs. Uh, we tend to have future budgets all promise austerity. And by the time we get to next year's budget, well, it tends to be a big bang, bang one. Yeah, spending your way is not the way to economic growth. Yes, if you invest smart, you can generate economic growth. But what we're seeing across New Zealand at the moment, there's an awful lot of operational spend going out and temporary, some of it questionable stimulus. It's just adding more inflation to those embers. You know, government actually now needs to rein things in. The OECD's come out and said it. The Reserve Bank of New Zealand is now looking for help from their fiscal mate. And now's not the time for a $6 billion operational budget, but that's what we're going to get on Thursday. Is that what you mean by 7% inflation and that's going to be sticky because I guess there's one school of thought that we had, we started to have high inflation around this time last year, maybe it was a bit later in the year last year. And so now you've got some difficult comparative years to to sort of that you cycle through. So inflation is going to start naturally coming down. You know, if you do 7% last year, doing 7% on top of that this year is quite hard. But, but are you saying it's sticky because there's some other things that haven't even started to flow through those inflation numbers yet? Yeah, well, just step back. Well, I put an article out on Business Desk, would have been the, the end of 2020, saying I was taking longer-dated borrowing rates because they look cheap relative to the inflation risk profile. And that, that was 2020. You know, that was before we started to see inflation pick up. Yeah, you know, what are we... What are we seeing driving inflation? Look, some of it's one-offs. COVID logistics, we hope will settle down somewhat. It's going to be intensified or magnified by the Ukrainian situation. But an awful lot of the inflation pressure we're seeing is just a, a fundamental mental mismatch between demand versus supply. 
you know, demand's been hooping along and supply is constrained. So you've got a recipe for what's called non-tradable domestic inflation. It's not as high as general inflation, but it's still up around 6%. Now, the Reserve Bank's going to try to get on top of that by hitting the economy with lower interest rates. You would actually like your government to try to be a lot more aggressive, stimulating supply. You reconnect the New Zealand around the globe, migration, labour availability, welfare reform. If we can get the supply side capacity of the economy up, yeah, maybe we can arrest some of those inflation pressures. But stepping aside from the economic cycle, you know, the unwinding of the funding for the, of the, the Fed balance sheet, money printing, that sort of stuff, let's think about some of the bigger picture changes that we're seeing out there at the moment. There looks to be like there's a, a big balance of power shift within the labour market. You know, what's called labour share of GDP around the globe is now starting to tick back up. It's becoming an environment of all power to the workers. Now, if you, if you look at when we've seen that previously, that was the 1960s, the 1970s. Globalisation is taking a backward step. Now, to the degree to which it becomes a big or multiple backward steps, we don't know. But global globalisation is no longer the deflationary force that it used to be. We're going to see a report today at 12 o'clock on climate change. Climate change is going to carry inflationary consequences. But the cost of building a home, I think, is going to go up by around another 20000 just because of these initiatives that are coming in. We're now in an era of bigger, more activist government. You know, we call it the era of monetary policy dominance is being replaced by fiscal do dominance. Bigger spending governments going forward around the globe. The whole political landscape has fundamentally shifted. Let's have a look at the baby boomer generation. The baby boomers were massive savers for a long period. Well, now starting to spend. Yeah, they're hitting that retirement age. So, so you look at these, these dynamics, and there's other things in there too, and you start to wonder, are we really going to be able to get inflation back towards 2%? Well, maybe the new normal might be 3 to 4 Now, Maybe the end game here is that as the economic costs of containing inflation became intensively tougher, i.e. house prices falling, unemployment moving up, maybe governments around the globe take the easy card and they just shift the inflation goalposts. If you were Adrian Orr thinking about this, I mean, he's he's been a little bit different from, say, the likes of the Fed in, in the US where he he's tried to go a bit harder a bit earlier to try and, uh, I guess, then justified by he might not have to increase rates as, as much as, as, as perhaps other economies. Do you think that's been the right approach and you, you think we're going to get it under more control than, than some other economies or, or do you think just because of that force of government spending you've been talking about, um, we're going we're gonna to see rates up and then what does that mean for things like mortgage rates and, and the likes that really affect the consumer? Well, the Reserve Bank went earlier than other central banks, but they were still pretty late to the party. You know, it's pretty clear early 2021 that... You know, we'd superseded expectations. We didn't need the monetary policy stimulus that was still coming through the pipeline. You know, why on earth do we have the funding for lending program? You know, liquidity crisis tool without liquidity crisis. In you know, May 2021, they were still saying the official cash rate wasn't going to be increased for years. Three months later, did they do an almighty U-turn because they, they needed to? So the market in New Zealand is pricing in <clears throat> the most aggressive tightening in interest rates New Zealand has ever seen. Now, some of it's a function of real economics. Some of it's actually been a function of a market that's pretty illiquid. Yeah, so the New Zealand market moved first, and then as the Australian rates market and the American market 
price turn hikes from the RBA and the US Federal Reserve, yeah, there was an absence of receivers within New Zealand swaps market. So the, the trading became quite a liquid. So the market in New Zealand tended to overshoot. What do we know at the moment? The market is pricing in you know, the biggest aggressive, <coughs> excuse me, rise in rates New Zealand has seen. Do I think New Zealand households can handle a 400 basis point increase in official cash rate in less than two years? The short answer is no. You know, I think we'll see the economy buckle before then. But you know, the Reserve Bank at the moment and inflation expectations two years out are 3.3%. Yeah, that will be three years of missing your target, which is an F for fail. So central banks at the moment have got to talk tough. It's all about their credibility. Now, ultimately, we're going to face a moment where central banks are going to have to pause and do the David Longy stop for a cup of tea. And I guess if you look at what are those conditions for a pause, there's sort of, I think there's four. Uh, one, you need to see headline inflation coming down, just because from a pure presentational perspective, it looks better. Two, you've got to get inflation expectations back in the 1% to 3% band. They're at 33 at the moment. Three, you need to see house prices, asset values come under pressure. Well, we've already ticked that box. In fact, we're a long way down that track. And the fourth one is you need to start to see the unemployment rate start to move up. And that's the one that could be a little bit more slow to move because if you go talk to firms out there at the moment, everywhere, everybody's scrambling for staff. And there's a lot of concern that we could lose people overseas, which could intensify those shortages. That, that, that's a good segue into migration. What, what's your feeling of what's going to happen there? Because, yeah, I mean, it's, it's talk at the moment, but it feels like we're going to um, get a whole lot of people who wanted to do their OE over the last three years all leave at the same time and, and, and migration into New Zealand doesn't seem to be as um, in high demand as it, as it was before COVID. Is, is, that, is that kind of what we're seeing in the stats at the moment? Yes, yeah, so if you look at the stats at the moment, uh, the last figures we got them the other day, we've had a small net exodus of minus 7,300. Now, it's slightly less worse than what it was at the end of 2021, where it was up around nine, nine and a half thousand. But it's still a negative outflow. Now, the anecdotes on the ground is that there's people that want to come. Obviously, there's plans afoot to sort of open up, reconnect. But there's also, like, you go talk to law firms, accountancy firms, you know, construction firms out there at the moment, they're generally really worried that there's a whole batch of people in their 20s that are going to say, I'm out of here. And off they go. And, of course, as we're reconnecting around the globe, you know, what are we seeing? The recruitment consultants from Australia are going to become increasingly across the ditch here in New Zealand and they're going to be targeting people. And this is where the combination of a housing affordability problem and inflation that's higher than Australia and wages that are higher in Australia could be real challenging. And, and so in the past, if we think about what migration gave the New Zealand economy, um, you know, there was always complaints, even in, in John Key's days, and, and then in this current government around, uh, we, we've got growing GDP, but you know, GDP per capita is decreasing. It's all driven by migration. Is that is that the reality of what migration was giving the country? And then, so without that, with the, with an exodus, uh, we're really going to have a struggling GDP for quite some time until we can turn the tide of of migration. Either that or we, we play the, the smart lever and try to get the productivity story up. Yeah, but, but if you go back, well, New Zealand, 
has been overly reliant upon migration for growth for a very long time. And what COVID unraveled was how dependent we were on that economic story, not just through a demand lens, but through a lens for firms to actually get the workers. You know, we've seen people have panned the backpackers. Well, the backpackers weren't there as tourists. The backpackers were there as a big mobile labour force around, around New Zealand. When we were reliant upon migration, I don't think we were seeing enough investment in local talent you know, here in New Zealand. Yeah, so the business sector needs to take a pretty cold, hard look at themselves in regard to you know, training locally, you know, investing in your biggest resource, which is, which is people. But big question going forward is, it, what's the potential growth rate of the New Zealand economy? How fast can we grow year after year? Yeah, that, that's the key to wealth creation. And if you look at it, it's pretty obvious migration is not going back to 60,000 a year. Yes, the growth in the working age population, the labour force is not going back to 2% every year. If you get that plus 1% productivity growth plus, well, you're in the 3% potential growth sort of phase. If we look at the past five-year trend for labour productivity growth, 0.6% per year. Labour productivity growth has not been above 1% any time in the last five years, but the five-year average is 06 now, if you put, say, 1% growth in the working age population, labour force on top of that, suddenly you've got a potential growth rate that's sub 2%. Now, that, that, that number really matters because if we cannot grow as fast, the, the Reserve Bank's got to hit the demand side of the economy an awful lot harder on the other side. You know, so I'd like to see a real big pivot, you know, not just within the, the government, but, but businesses realising we need to go hellishly harder here in regards to driving what is the big key to wealth creation, which is productivity growth. And the trends, if you look at them, are not flash. Can you can you define, when, when economists like yourself talk about productivity, what, what are we actually talking about? And then how, how do you flex that? And how do businesses and governments flex that to increase productivity? Well, here's, here's, here's a classic one. Yeah, it's well known, yeah, the, the quality of our infrastructure around New Zealand. Well, it's poor. And COVID has exposed how poor it is because all the ships are no longer coming in to all the ports. So now we've got to whip the stuff around by the trucking network and the, and the network's just not that as efficient. Yeah, by the way, how many ports do we actually need across New Zealand? By the way, let, let's have a look at the education sector. Well, the education sector is probably the most important barometer of where New Zealand is going to be 30 years out. Not just in regard to producing people that are going to be in the labour force, but how smart good they are. How good and smart do you think the kids we're producing today when we've got declining school attendance and we've got declining uh, achievement? You know, you're seeing all this, this attention on truancy and the link to these RAM rates and these, these sort of things. Now, I could go on and on about you know, the you know, productivity growth, but when you break it down, it's really simple. It's just a, it's the efficiency of those factor inputs, such as capital and also labour. How smart are we at using those resources in an efficient manner? On some levels, when you go down to field days, for instance, yeah, and you have a look at what's going on there across the agriculture sector, there's some real amazing stuff that's that's taking place. All the drones walking around the farms and the, the 12-year-old kids operating the drones. There's all these sort of funny things that are, that are going on. But if you look at, unfortunately, the productivity statistics we're seeing of late, they are not showing improvement. They show a slowly deteriorating trend. Are there, 
what's a good comparative country like? Does Australia have much higher productivity than New Zealand or or the or the UK or US or Europe? Yeah, typically you you got most economies have got a number with a one handle in front of it. And New Zealand used to have a one handle in front of it. We've now got yeah something with a point zero point in front of it. Now, now some of that, New Zealand suffers because we don't have the scale of a whole lot of other countries around the globe. And so we need to be doing things an awful lot better in regard to the regulatory, the policy framework. But if you look at the regulatory, the policy framework at the moment, it's hardly what you would call you know, encouraging people to get out there and invest in the in the real productive stuff. I'll give you an, another example. Yeah, the Reserve Bank, when they brought in the rules for banks to have to hold more capital, what do banks do? Well, they suddenly decided to lend more into the housing market because you need to hold more less regulatory capital. So suddenly a, a policy which good intention had unintended consequences in regard that we saw home lending go from 58% of bank balance sheets to 62% of total lending in the space of four years. And housing is one of the least productive uh, assets of the economy, really, other than I guess it, it helps with... Um, consumer spending when people feel like they're making money by house prices going up? Yeah, well, maybe this is the, the big reality wake-up call for New Zealanders at the moment. Because if you, if you ever look at the ratio of house prices to income in New Zealand, it's up around 11. Now, to get house prices back down to where house prices were relative to incomes in 10 years' time and pre-COVID, House prices need to grow at 0% per year for the next 10 years. Now, is that going to take place? The answer is no. But what it serves to highlight is that if you look at the economics of housing, you're off the charts. If you look at the politics of housing at the moment, you're into that politically dangerous zone as well, where politicians cannot afford to let history repeat. Now, so I step back here and think about it. If interest rates are going up, you say interest rates are no longer going to be in a down, downtrend, say there's a slight uptrend, yeah, obviously a bit of it front-loaded, yeah, what does housing look like as an investment for the next 10 years and certainly not as flash? Yeah, where people are going to have to start to think about making their money, I come back to what I said at the start, taking real risk. Yeah, that's what you need to do in a rising different rate interest rate environment. It's about adding to your assets. It's about you know, generating assets that actually generate pure cash flow. Yeah, massive you know, implications here for commercial property, farms. Everybody's played the low interest rate card. It's an interesting one because when you think about housing and, and productivity it's and, and what's going on with perhaps migration, the fact that there's this exodus, you can get pretty bearish. And then on the other side of it, we... Part of what Ukraine, I guess, has caused the world is, is this food crisis, and um, and how ongoing that is. Uh, you know, it's you know we're still probably unsure, but you know, New Zealand isn't a strong point place with our export markets, especially around dairy, and perhaps we, you know, do we underestimate that in the in the sense that our biggest export is linked to oil prices, which is going up dramatically, and actually. Uh, really helping with those terms of trade or is that just not enough of a driver of, of New Zealand's economy perhaps that it once was? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good point. Like, I mean, if you sit back and you think about it, yeah, COVID probably 
helped identify some much needed appreciation for the rural heartland across New Zealand because we're, we're one big farm and the world needed to eat and we kept the supply chain actually open. What we're also seeing now in an inflationary environment is that if you're a low-cost producer, which New Zealand is, you're going to be better placed. You're not going to like what's going on because inflation is potentially eroding your earnings, but we're seeing an awful lot of pressure around the globe of peripheral producers. Well, you've got to start the question about whether they can, they can survive. The glass-up-empty view of that is that are we going to re-enter a world based on subsidies and protectionism? Because food is just an essential. So suddenly that the world becomes very unlevel in regard to the playing field for essential items such as food. And the jury is still out here in regard to where we're going to go in regard to that. You turn it to New Zealand's terms of trade. New Zealand's terms of trade, which is the ratio of export prices to import prices, has increased around 45% in the last 20 years. It's a compound growth rate of about 2.1% per year. What does that mean? The price of food, what we sell overseas, has massively risen faster than the price of stuff we bring in, i.e. the manufactured stuff, goods, particularly the stuff out of China. And that's been a big source of economic growth for New Zealand. It's been one of the reasons the New Zealand dollar was trading an awful lot higher consistently over a long period because it was supporting the current account, it was supporting living standards. Now, I'm undecided at the moment. I'm still trying to get my head around it. What is the outlook for New Zealand's terms of trade over the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah, one of my fears is that what if that ratio, after surging 45%, now starts to go down? Yeah, political reality bites how much people can pay for food, but this current bout of inflation means manufactured goods become the really inflate, inflationary goods. When we bring in the manufacturing goods, yeah, so you start to think about what does this mean for the terms of trade? Maybe it's lower, not higher. What does it mean for fair value for the Kiwi dollar versus the US dollar? Probably lower, not higher. Do you think that's what's driving the Kiwi at the moment or is that more just a, a, an interest rate differential and what's going on in the US rather than anything to do with terms of trade? Because it's, it's been a, quite a big move in the NZ dollar over the last few weeks. Oh, it's, 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 it's been all about the... The US dollar, you have a look at dollar yen, you, know, you, you have a look at the Australian dollar as well. Uh, the currency that I'm keeping a close eye on in regards to repitching New Zealand's fundamentals is Kiwi Aussie. The Kiwi Aussie was up there. Yeah, we, we were consistently in the 90 zone, but not necessarily the 90 zone for quite a while. Yeah, now it's suddenly the, the low 90s, and it looks like we're going to see a break. And, and maybe yeah, history starts to reassert there that suddenly fair value for the Aussie Kiwi, sorry, Kiwi Aussie, is now back in that 85 to 88 zone as opposed to the 90s number I think people have got used to for the past seven, eight years. And the Aussies don't really have the same issue around, I guess, food exports and, and some of the pressures that might come with protectionism, et cetera, because Aussie, the lucky country, they're sitting on a whole bunch of commodities that no one else has. And, and so their terms of trade can actually increase even with an increasing price of manufactured goods that they have to import. Is, is, is that kind of a good way to look at it? Uh, it a couple of ways. It's structurally at the moment, I think Australia is just in a better space, at least within a five-year time frame. You know, I'm seeing too many cracks in New Zealand's economic story. But if you sit back and you think about 
Look, New Zealand is long overweight renewable resources. Where do you actually want to be? Overweight renewable resources. Like Australia in a fossil fuel climate change world, they've got some deep-rooted structural problems 10 to 20 years out down the track. Yeah, so there's going to be a little bit of pay in the pipe within that very long-term sense within Australia as well, which probably caps how much of an adjustment you see within the, the Kiwi Aussie. Uh, but, yeah, the, the New Zealand was became a little bit, you know, top dog for a long time. And a lot of the reason we were top dog migration, these sort of things, we're never going to be self-sustaining for a long time. And New Zealand just feels like we're in a little bit more of a payback zone versus Australia over the coming five years. Yeah, it's it's an inter- interesting one because it's um, it, it's it's they've always been saved by that uh, high carbon, ec- commodity driven economy, and and I wonder if they're going through their own sort of uh, thought process around what what needs to drive their economy going forward, given given yeah changes in, and especially around environmental legislation, which seems to be on hold at the moment, given the cost of energy overseas. You know, all of a sudden, no one likes carbon credits when. And uh, they've sort of fallen out of bed in price, but uh, it kind of feels like it's still here to stay, and they and they are in real trouble with with some of those rules. Yeah, well, we, we have a look at what, what's the biggest concern to households in New Zealand at the moment: inflation, cost of living, climate change is number seven. All right, so yes, we, we're going to get some announcements out today, which is we need to embrace them and go down that path. But yeah. We're going to get told this news is going to be more inflationary, higher cost of living at a time households are already getting, you know, there's talk about the middle income poor group coming through New Zealand as well. And that's going to make it politically challenging in regard to how you deliver what actually needs to get done. But I guess the simple rule here, there's no free lunch. One of the the hopes as COVID sort of normalised and, and borders open was tourism any views on on how that's going to rebound? And and there's a lot of discussion around having you know really high value tourism. I don't know how you quite change it other than um, you know attract people by uh, only having business class flights. Because you know how do you actually stop backpackers coming if they if they want to come? But that that's the part that's always confused me around the makeup of your tourism um, uh, client is that it's sort of it, it's it's demand driven, isn't it? But how, how do you think tourism plays out in, in New Zealand post, post-COVID? I think tourism faces a very long, hard road back. And is that global? Yeah, not, not necessarily global. Um, look, New Zealand is just a lot more distant from anywhere else. And I, I'm, I'm thinking of my own overseas holidays. Yeah, now you've got to put this within a risk management framework. You know, if something goes wrong, you actually don't want to be too far from home so you can actually get back. And particularly if you've got you know, families, yeah, so suddenly the whole idea of look, the Chinese market's going to take a long time to, to reconnect. Now, China's a lockdown. They're, they're our, our biggest market, at least dollar amount, not, sorry, not dollar amount, but they're, they're the most important amount in regard to average, average spent. Um, the tourism market in New Zealand's been supported for a long time just by cheaper and cheaper flights and greater accessibility and more aeroplanes, airlines in New Zealand. How long is it going to take to rebuild that capacity? I suspect the answer is a long time. Structurally, I wonder where whether the tourism sector in New Zealand is going to have the same product on the ground. If you can't get the same people, you're going to stay in a nice hotel, you actually want you know, all the restaurants open, 
if you can't get the staff, you can't get the top shifts, what's your service offering there? So we're seeing down in Queenstown at the moment, look, the hotels are operating at limited capacity and it's not because they don't have demand. They do have demand for the likes of the school holidays. They actually can't get the people to actually run the facilities. And this is where the backpackers, like reconnecting with that part of the market is going to be really critical going forward. So if I have a look at the, the net, because you know, people tend to overweight tourism. They think about it just through people coming in lens. But you you got to think about the people going out on the other side. I, I suspect New Zealanders are going to be reconnecting to the Cook Islands, Fiji, Australia, faster than what global travellers reconnect into New Zealand. Yeah, I guess that then puts a um, what, what was what was tourism as a percentage of GDP before COVID? Well, well, tourism. So if you look at international tourism, which is the number that was being thrown around, and it included education, it's about a seventeen billion dollar number. Now you throw in domestic tourism on top of that, you got something up around thirty odd, thirty odd billion. The problem with that seventeen billion dollar figure was that it didn't net off what we spent overseas. So if you look at the net contribution of tourism, it was actually not the big heavy hitter that was being thrown around, i.e. 5% of GDP, because as soon as we couldn't travel overseas, well, we started to play our money into the domestic economy. You know, so, so net tourism spend was about 2 to 3% of GDP. You know, so these comparisons that you know, tourism was as big as daring was not correct when you look at it through a net lens. And so th- that's interesting. So uh, when you think about it, it's... It's difficult for the companies involved in tourism. They are getting absolutely um, um, uh, hit hard by you know lockdowns and things. But as a, as a sector as a whole, uh, economy as a whole, actually, that's why we really haven't seen that slowdown in GDP. So having it come back is is that is another way of looking at it. Um, having it not come back. Um, is important though because the net number could get really quite negative because if we start all travelling but no one comes to New Zealand, I don't know if we're all going to start travelling or not, but I assume people will start yeah, going just, at least I'm to the Cook Islands and yeah. Fiji and things. Yeah, I, I don't think the net number will be a large improvement. There's my instincts at the moment. And, and you have a look at the, yeah, the, there's still a whole lot of people are not going to travel overseas for a long time, but some people will. What we saw post-COVID was we saw a big collapse in what New Zealanders were spending overseas because we didn't travel. Now, do I see a lot of that money played into the domestic tourism market? The answer is no. You know, I thought a lot of that would get played in domestic travel because everybody rushed down to Queenstown, all these sort of things. What we actually saw was that people who sold cars, people who sell motorcombs, people who sold spa pools actually hoovered up an awful lot of that offshore tourism money that got diverted into the domestic economy. But it's almost like the New Zealand international tourism market was waiting for the international door to be back open, as opposed to getting out there actively pitching. There's a big domestic pool of cash here we can actually tap into. Let's go real aggressive for that. And so I think from memory, we saw a pickup in domestic tourism spend of about a billion dollars. And I think offshore tourism spent from memory was about $9 billion. So not, hard, you know, very small percentage. Yeah. Now, now if, yeah, New Zealand was shut down, locked down for parts of that. Yeah, so you're never going to get all of it back. But it just gives you an idea. And look, you, you all know the anecdotes about if you couldn't go to Europe, what did you do? You went and bought a new car. You suddenly 
yeah, you couldn't, couldn't take that overseas sort of crop. So there's 20,000 to Johnny or Jenny to help them out in their first home. You know, upgrading the, the carpet, you know, the sparkle anecdotes were absolutely rife. You know, a, a lot of that offshore money just got ploughed into other parts of the domestic economy. What's going to be interesting is what happens to those other parts of the domestic economy in the next six to 12 months if we start to holiday again. All of a sudden, people aren't going to Bunnings in the weekend. They're going going on holiday. Yeah, it's, 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 it's those big tickets. Items. Yeah, the, the anecdotes, so the, the demand for yeah, the motorhomes, these sort of things, and you were seeing it around the country. People just, instead of going on a holiday, they went and bought a motorhome, and that's what they did. Cameron, the, the final topic I wanted to discuss with you, and it would be amiss if I didn't, given I'm a Kiwi and this is, seems to be what we all talk about at the dinner table, um, is, is housing. And you've touched on it a bit about how we've already seen a, a fall, but a little bit of crystal ball here, but um, I'm pretty simple when I think about it. I, I look at our favourite sort of mortgage rate, which is the two-year fixed mortgage, and where's that going? And is and that's going to have a pretty big detriment, I would have thought, on on house prices. And it doesn't feel like that that two-year fixed rate has stopped yet in terms of increasing. Is that is that a way to look at it? And is and how how do you think about housing and what's going to happen? Um, not the productivity size, just generally. Well, if you look at house prices in in general at the moment, you've got a a losing Quinella or a losing quadruple. You've got rising interest rates. Yeah, credit is an awful lot tougher to get. The supply demand dynamics around New Zealand has shifted uh, fundamentally in Auckland, and you've got the government policy tax changes, which yeah, if people now start to scroll through, yeah, when you can no longer claim that tax deduction, yeah, it makes a big difference to what the bottom line numbers are, actually look like. Yeah, so suddenly the allure of housing, which was yeah, trading, what can only be described as quite scary multiples in the first place, you, you got an asset price that's in a pretty dangerous zone. Now, the glass up full is that, well, if we start to see anything become systemically problematic, the Reserve Bank has got the tools to deal with it. You know, they can lighten up and loan to value ratio restrictions. The market will no longer price in such an aggressive interest rate cycle. But if I go back to what I talked about earlier on, yeah, taming inflation is not growth or asset price friendly. And now we're in the rubber hit the road sort of phase where we've got a lot of inflation. And are we going to be prepared to wear what could be a pretty harsh economic adjustment on the other side to get that inflation genie back down, back in the bottle, or towards 2%? Or are we going to be end up in an environment where it becomes too hard and we shift the inflationary goalposts? But you know, the housing market, Auckland, it's down 10% mark the market from November the last year. You know, that, that is a far deeper adjustment than what we saw during the G, GFC. And it's still early days. You know, there's 170-odd billion worth of fixed-rate mortgages that probably fixed this time last year around 2.19% with that ANZ rate, what are they going to get? 4.5%. So your mortgage rate doubles. Now, if you've been around a long time, 45 is still low. It's double what your first mortgage might have been. Yeah, so it's a double your mortgage cost. Actually, what you need is more than double the money because the money you need to find is after tax. 
Yeah, so, so suddenly you, you, you've got a, a completely different trajectory in play for the housing market, and the, the Reserve Bank needs to be very careful here. Where do you think that number could get to, that, that four, four and a half now? Well, the market was assuming the, the official cash rate could go to, to 4%. It's backed off from that in the past couple of days as interest rates have fallen a bit. Yeah, but if you had a, a typical one and two year fixed mortgage rate margin on top of that, <clears throat> you're talking rates up with a high five. Yeah, that puts a lot of pressure on on that sort of e- e- yeah incremental house price. Yeah, well, you, you're already seeing like the, the five year rates are still up around those sort of levels. Yeah, yeah, th- those rates are still low. But yeah, one of the things I'm thinking about is what's the neutral interest rate in New Zealand. What's what's the what's called the neutral official cash rate, which is where the Reserve Bank's neither got the foot in the accelerator or the brake. So that number the Reserve Bank estimates to be two percent. Yeah, ten odd years ago it was twenty years ago it was five and a half. What if it's no longer two percent? The same with the US Fed funds rate. I think that's two to two and a half. Yeah, what if neutral interest rates start to gravitate up over the next ten years? just like they've gravitated down and actual interest rates with it over the past 20. And maybe you end up in an environment where actual interest rates start to gravitate up, not just because of physical official cash rates, but because central banks need to have the official cash rate in a higher zone to actually do their job. It's an interesting one because at the same time, we've had a question and around sort of a housing affordability relative to income, the, the, the market almost might do it for you if incomes are rising because of inflation and, and house prices are coming down. But I guess that's a good thing in, in some ways, but also pain for the economy as that adjustment happens. Yeah, and traditionally, inflation has been pretty good for the property market, you know, including commercial property. Yeah, so we're in a, that's one of the reasons I, I don't like to bake in an excessive crash collapse stories with the nominal house prices. Yeah, I'm quite happy to put a big number on the table in regard to how much I fear, think real house prices will fall. But yeah, if the replacement cost of building a house is up 18% this year, but that actually adds incremental value to the existing stock because if it adds an awful lot more, if the cost of build is now prohibitive, yeah, I, I think we're going to see building consents tail off pretty sharply in the next 12 months. As people yeah, just sudden, that, not, that not going consent, for it anymore, yeah. Well, that, that, that building that you had in the pipeline and you just got a consent for, well, you know, you're getting the estimates done and, well, odds are the builder's not going to give you a firm price. And irrespective, you need to put in a number that was 20% higher than when you, when you first put the consent in. And for a lot of people, that, that, that just takes that project into the, the unaffordable zone. And by the way, it's tougher to get credit. Well, Cameron, you know, we've jumped around a lot this morning, but that's been really, really appreciative in terms of the different drivers of the economy. I think it we're going through a um, certainly a change because of what is happening on the inflation and interest rate front and uh, the overlay of what's going to happen this week with more government spending doesn't bode well for uh, the inflationary environment, that's for sure. And um, so, you know, we appreciate your comments around how we th- should think about this. Um, you said something at the start and I'm going to repeat it because it's... Um, um, you know, it fits into to our mould, but, you know, you can't just sit there being fully invested in a passive market and hope you're going to get the same result as you did in the last 10 years because it's just not going to happen this time around. 
Yeah, a lot of people are looking at where we're going through probably a glass half empty lens, and it's yeah, you can put a glass half empty lens around because it's going to get more difficult. But the glass half full is that you know, people that know how to take real risk yeah, and active investment strategies are going to outshine passive over the next sort of few years. You know, getting a lot more normalcy back into the market is actually a good thing. You know, the people that are actually good at what they do will do well over the next sort of few years. All that's going to go on is that we're going to, we're going to shake out a lot of those people that just really, you know, were only really around or shone brightly because of lower interest rates. Well, thanks again, Cameron. And, you know, we'd love to get you back in a few months' time just to talk around how we're tracking. But until then, you know, good luck with the uh, with the crystal ball gazing and, and have a great week. You too. Thank you. This has been The Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme, the NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service, the NZ Funds Advice Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns. 